A vaguely human figure staggered towards Tia Yu through the rain. She guessed it might be male, but could not be sure. Flakes of black ash covered the remains of its naked, shriveled body. One arm hung as a stump of tattered meat. Hallucinations of pain radiated from it, like the vibrating inner light of a migraine. It had survived the wrath of the three bodhisattvas and a bath of nuclear fire. Tia Yu knew that, even weakened as it was, she could not fight it. If she tried, it would replenish its strength on her chi. Although the thing had no eyes, only sockets oozing black blood, it turned to face the pair. Its fanged jaws worked, and it rasped out, Blood. Feed. Hunger. It spoke Sanskrit, the ancient tongue of India. Few other Ravnos who walked the earth these nights, and their clan, once counted amongst the thirteen great, is now only spoken of in hushed conversations, often as examples of just how quickly the tides of fate may turn, and how powerless even the mightiest Methuselah may be against it. In the year 1999, a red star appeared in the sky. To mortals, it was nigh invisible, just another dot of light among many. But amongst the supernatural beings, it was a portent. An evil sign that events were to unfold that would thoroughly shake the world to its very core. And it would begin deep beneath the surface of the earth, in India. For many years, the Ravnos of India had been at war with the Wang Kuei, the vampire-like undead of East Asia, and India had become the battlegrounds for it. Unable to match the skill and power of these mysterious creatures, the vampires would resort to mass embraces on par with the strategies of the Sabbat. These countless thinbloods were then thrown against their enemies, their spilt blood a bulwark for the elders of the clan to keep themselves alive for one more night. Yet these sacrifices would have another effect. The smell of so much kindred blood spilt, deluded or not, eventually woke many of the clan's Methuselah from their deep slumber, and they began to feast on those younger than themselves, their thirst unslakable by the blood of mere mortals. With their immediate thirst slaked, they easily pushed back the Wang Kuei, who could barely match the power of such ancient creatures, although their bodhisattvas are said to have been roughly a match against them. For a while it seemed as if the war for India would be won, even if it meant the death of many of the local Ravnos at the hands of their elders. Yet the awakening of these creatures, and the subsequent death of a significant number of them, would in turn stir a much older being from its slumber. In the last days of June, all across the world, vampiric and mortal seers alike would be overwhelmed by powerful visions of a demonic king rising out from beneath a grand mountain calling upon his descendants to feast on them. This king had ten heads and a demonic visage, resembling the demon king Ravana. Even those kindred who were without prophetic vision suffered bouts of unease and fear for inexplicable reasons, and amongst the Wang Kuei, the realization of what was about to happen came early, their wisest elders, the bodhisattvas, preparing for war. The creature that had awoken began to feast upon the Methuselah of the Ravnos clan, draining them and discarding their rapidly decaying corpses with ease. 
Wherever it went, death and destruction was all that it left behind. In Bangladesh, it met its first true opposition. The tiger, the dragon, the crane. Three of the Wangkwe's mightiest bodhisattvas fought the ancient monster. They fought in our reality, they fought in the Umbra, in the underworld. So great was their war that it caused a storm to roll across the tempest of the Shadowlands, and the Wangkwe blotted out the sun, creating a mighty typhoon to slow the creature down, to contain it in Bangladesh where the war was taking place. To help them, the Bodhisattvas tore the shroud, gauntlet, whatever you want to call what separates our realm from that of spirits apart, sending hordes of their incorporeal servants to fight the enemy of their masters. The technocratic union, who were in the habit of secretly supervising the activities of these so-called reality deviants, would detect these strange weather patterns and, in turn, activate what they refer to as Code Ragnarok. As befitting its name, a scenario of this magnitude brooked no sacrifices, costs or actions to be prevented. No single life was too valuable to be spared in order to contain this anomaly, and after having identified the warring creatures as being vampires, four soletas, mile-wide satellite mirrors orbiting the Earth, were activated in order to capture and focus the light from the sun upon Bangladesh. Yet the storm proved too powerful for the light to break through, and the technocratic union sent in several groups of agents on a literal suicide mission to break apart the storm. It would ultimately kill them all, as the spirits unleashed by the bodhisattvas cared little for what they killed. Yet with the help of a pack of Garu, the storm chasers managed to activate the devices that could help disperse the typhoon. All the while this was going on, Ravnos across the world would experience a sudden and staggering connection with their ancestor, the creature who had stirred in India, Zapatazura. Its rage and hunger would fill them, and they would find their mastery over their clan's power of illusion, chemistry, increase manifolds, yet all the while becoming unpredictable and chaotic. Likewise, the blood in their undead veins would stir most powerfully, and they would fall into deep frenzies, mirroring the fury of their antediluvian. Eventually, the technocratic union could wait no further. Unable to lift the storms, despite their most advanced devices fighting the magics of the Wan Kuei, the order was given to deploy the most devastating weapon ever created. Bombs capable of not only obliterating the physical reality, but the spiritual realm as well. These so-called spirit nukes, destroying the Umbra in Bangladesh utterly, as well as the three bodhisattvas and all spirits serving them. The Guru were annihilated, and thousands upon thousands of lives were lost in the inferno. Yet even as the dust settled, even as all but a few Wangkwei remained standing after this devastating attack, the grandchild of Cain the Accursed remained standing. Battered, mangled, in immense pain yet still alive if a creature in a state such as it could be called so. It thirsted for blood, it hungered for vengeance for the pain it had suffered. And then the Wang Kuei dispersed the clouds of the typhoon. Its death was torturous, drawn out, yet even as it fell, so too did the clan fall upon itself. Overwhelmed by a supernatural thirst for the blood of their kin, the Ravnos all across the world would descend upon each other, even as the greasy ashes of their founder spread to the winds. 
Ultimately, there would only be less than a hundred of the clan remaining, all of weak blood, yet fortunate enough to remain behind the extinction of their kind. And in less than seven days, one of the antediluvians had awoken, had caused the death of over a million mortals, and had taken everything the technocratic union and the Wanquay could throw its way. It had exterminated its own childer, and it had caused irreparable damage to the spirit realm around it. Soon after, the sixth great maelstrom would erupt, wrecking havoc upon the Shadowlands. An ancient seal upon the abyss would be broken, sending the tortured, screaming spirits of demons towards Earth, and the Avatar Storm would make the Umbra nigh-traversable for mages and technocrats alike. Indeed, many of their best and brightest would be annihilated or cut off from the physical world by the ravages done to the Umbra. Zapatasura was dead, yet the cost had been too great. A Pyrrhic victory. While many of the seers and prophets recovered from their grim visions, some remained locked in fevered states of hallucinations, shrieking in long dead languages and clawing at the walls of their cells as their minds could not comprehend the ancient evil that had stirred from beneath the soil of India. Amongst the leaders of the Camarilla, the very things so many of them had feared had now become truth. They needed to hide these events to their sect, lest there would be a mass exodus to join the Sabbat. After all, the antediluvians did exist, and this was no secret to most of the sect's older members, and they hungered for the blood of their descendants. For the Sabbat, this was proof, a sign that Gehenna had begun in earnest. For many, if not most of them, this is what they had been preparing for their entire unlives. For others, this is what they had dreaded. Gehenna was inevitability. Gehenna was the end and they had grown so complacent, ruling over their little tin soldiers. And amongst a secret, altogether clandestine group of vampires, despair was consuming them. Their ancestral home was destroyed, along with many of their leaders. The ancients whom they had worshipped and sought to bring back cared not a whit for their protestations, and their very purpose had been a lie. Amongst the Talmahera, Uncertainty and fear entered the hearts of creatures who had known single-minded purpose for hundreds of years. This video was brought to you by my patron Socrates Johnson, whose support of my work allows me to devote more time and energy than ever to provide you with the choicest bit of lore from the world of darkness. Thank you so much for supporting me, and I hope this video was to your liking.